You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Welcome, everyone. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAJ. Before we move on to our interview, I want to introduce a new sponsor for The Cutting Edge. PolarTech is a name all climbers should be familiar with. In fact, it's a pretty safe bet that if you're listening to this show, you have a PolarTech fleece or two hanging in your closet. PolarTech is celebrating its 40th anniversary of outfitting climbers this year. Many listeners will remember the PolarTech Challenge Cramps, which sent alpinists like the Huber Brothers, Doug Scott, Steve Swenson, and Steve House on climbing expeditions across the globe. The stories they returned with helped fill the pages of the AHA. I'm really excited to have PolarTech on board, and I look forward to sharing more stories with their support. Our special guest this time is Lynn Hill, who really needs no introduction. But we do need to explain why we invited Lynn, whose most cutting-edge climbs were quite a long time ago, onto the show. The reason is that she has a lot to say about women's climbing, and that's the theme of a special series of podcasts we're launching with this episode. For the 2020 American Alpine Journal, Sarah Hart, a Canadian alpinist, took a deep look at the state of the art of women's climbing and helped us create a plan to expand the coverage of great female ascents in the AHA. As part of this effort, Sarah also interviewed several top female climbers for their perspectives on the challenges they've faced and the future of women's climbing. These interviews make up this special series. So before we get to her interview with Lynn, I asked Sarah to join us briefly and explain a little more about her article and these interviews. So Sarah, welcome to The Cutting Edge, and uh, thank you for coming on and explaining a little bit about this series that we're doing. Well, thank you for inviting me, Dougal. So this all originated with a story that you wrote for the 2020 American Alpine Journal. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about the origins of that article and what you hope to accomplish? Yeah, um, that that was a long process that started uh, probably back in 2017 um, after I had um, been mulling over uh, an ascent by two American women, Chantelle Astorga and Jewel Lund, who had climbed the Denali Diamond. And um, I remember when that ascent was first made public, I was totally blown away. It was the first time a team of women had climbed an Alaska grade five. So in my mind, it was really big news. Uh, but in the, uh, the grand scheme of alpinism history or reporting, it was the seventh ascent and uh, not really that big of a deal overall. Uh, but as I sort of like thought about this, I, I felt that this was important to capture for the history of women's alpinism or women in climbing. And that was really the, what the start of all of this. And, uh, and from there on working with, um, a group of really invested in passionate people, um, in our community, we were able to, as presented in that journal article, create a mechanism whereby climbs by teams of women could receive recognition and reporting in the American Alpine Journal uh, that was representative of the significance of that accomplishment for women as opposed to uh, the broader community and, and ultimately just prevent significant ascents from being lost in history. Because the American mm-hmm. Alpine Journal is a really important place to capture the history of our sport. And and I really felt that we needed to devise a way to ensure that 
it was captured um, not just by a simple two-line mention, but really like called out the significance of that accomplishment for women. Yeah. And part of the idea was not to to do it in a way that wasn't going to be sort of tokenism in any way. I mean, not just having, uh, you know, like a women's corner of the AAJ or that sort of thing. It was a way that uh, only the most significant climbs for women would be would receive this additional coverage in the book. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that was actually a really important part of the whole process and why it took so long because we as a as a collective working on this really did not want to patronize or um diminish the accomplishment by these women. And I think to do that, it required a really robust method. Uh, and in the journal article, we present this sort of summary, the baseline document that outlines what we call the state of the art or where we stand um, as far as the cutting edge of women's alpinism. And I think that that was a really important part of this because Again, we're trying to recognize the significance of the accomplishment and not just uh, use this as a as a sort of like simple tool to tick the box that says, "Great, now we've covered off you know recognizing women in the sport." I don't I don't think that that's fair because there's so much effort that goes into these amazing amazing climbs. Right, right. Well, I mean, I would encourage listeners to to go read the article. I mean, it's available in this year's book. It's available online. You can search for it and find it. The thing I wanted to talk about today was, uh, you know, in the end, your article avoids discussing too much why there are relatively few women at the highest levels of alpinism and big wall climbing, uh, whether those reasons are biological or social barriers or other factors. And, and could you just explain briefly why the article doesn't get into those factors? Yeah. It is interesting, like that is an argument that could go on forever. And in fact, I feel that the reason why it's taken until 2020 to create this this tool or this mechanism to um, elevate a report on women's specific ascents is because <laughs> it's so complex, the, the gender argument or the biological argument. And, you know, I think a lot of people learned in 2020 about this concept of intersectionality and how there are so many factors at play in the experience of um, specific groups of people. And it's very hard to tease out that um, in a, you know, a small article. I think the overarching goal of this whole project is to simply ensure that history is captured for women in alpinism and that it's captured in a way that um, reflects the significance of the accomplishment. We're focusing on what's being accomplished and not uh, why there is differentiation between men and women in this sport so much. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, I think otherwise, this whole endeavor would just get lost in the muck of really like highly subjective arguments about why there is a difference. So we're trying to focus more on what was accomplished and d- devising a suitable way to um, report that. You know, that said, we all know there are various factors at work, um, you know, societal factors, environmental factors. And is that why you wanted to sort of go beyond the scope of this article and and do some interviews with top female climbers? I mean, did you want to get their views on some things that the article didn't or couldn't discuss? Yeah, exactly. If we're going to explore the why of gender difference or the the why um, of this whole of this whole project, it needs to really come from the voices of the women that we're speaking about. It's not my place. It's not the task force's place to um, try and present why there is a different experience or even, you know, recognize maybe there isn't a different experience for some of the women who are top performers in our sport. So I, I do think that 
hearing directly from the women who were reporting on is really important in all of this. Your first up was Lynn Hill. Uh, you know, I know one of your one of your idols. Is that fair to say? One of your idols? Most definitely. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, you know, before we get going with that, you know, thinking back on the, the conversation you had with her, I mean, it was actually quite a few months ago now. Um, is there anything you'd like to sort of say about the conversation with Lynn? Yeah. I, I mean, this is such a cool opportunity because I think we all know the stats around what Lynn has accomplished. And uh, from a practical perspective, we really do have a very clear understanding of why she uh, is one of the best uh, female climbers of all time. But what this interview gave a chance to is like, what was going on in the background for Lynn? What are those intersecting factors in her life's experience uh, uh, and her sort of position as one of the top female climbers in the world. What does she make of her career in the sport? And so that is really what the interview focuses on. And it's quite interesting. Lynn has clearly done a lot of self-reflection on her, her position in the sport, her career. Well, Sarah, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all the work that you put into this project both for the article in the 2020 AAJ, but also for this podcast series. Um, and I know that listeners are going to really be interested in these stories and these conversations. So, so thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Dougald. And with that, here's Sarah Hart and Lynn Hill with this month's episode. Okay, then let's do this. We've got an hour. So <laughs> I uh, usually ask like, um, some introductory questions or at least say something very introductory. But at this point, um, I feel like it's sort of ir irrelevant. I would imagine that there are many people who know who you are and know what you've done. So it's a moot point. So when I was preparing for the interview and doing a little bit more research, I noticed that in general, it seems like you've kind of transitioned from profesh the professional athlete role more to an advocate role. And, um, particularly around initiatives that enhance the capacity of women in sport. Um, and I know that, you know, I've read that social justice advocacy is often driven by personal experience for folks. And so I just thought I'd start by asking you, what is it that um, has led you to want to be involved in women-specific initiatives? In particular, I noticed that you are working with an organization in Chile that's supporting single mothers to access climbing. And I just wanted to know what's, what's behind all of that. Why are you interested in that? Well, that's jumping right in for sure. <laughs> but kind of the meat of my, the story of my life, maybe in some um, background way, because I think that as a little girl being called a tomboy and, you know, doing things that were considered boy behavior or, you know, masculine somehow, um, I, I learned to embrace what was true for me. I just started listening to myself. Maybe that was just a natural temperament. It's hard to see myself, you know, differently because I feel like I've always been that way. And if somebody says, you can't do it, that's like actually encouraging me to try. That's the way I interpret it. So, oh, you think a woman can't do this? Huh, I think I can. I see the way to do it. Why would you say that? Why would you limit somebody? And and I've always asked that question my entire life. And still today, it's ridiculous that we're still fighting this, but women are still not paid the same as men in the same job. Mm -hmm. Even if she doesn't have kids, um, she would still get paid less than a man who did have kids. Um, and it's just a stereotype that seems to be deeply set in our subconscious, which has affected my life. It's affecting the world. It's affecting the opportunities, the way that we raise our children. It's directly related to our communities. Yeah. So this is why it's important to me to talk about these things because they're subconscious. At this point, people don't even know they're making those decisions. They just are look at the facts. Wow. Yeah. And like one of the reasons why I was so excited to interview you is because you've like already, you've lived your, your career 
as a climber and are able to look back on it now. And I, I mean, the things that I've heard you say in interviews recently, and um, I listened to this super cool podcast that you did recently, and you know, you're very willing to say it like it is, and but do so very graciously. It did take me years to get to this point because mm-hmm. I'm really one that's careful about trying to not sound like sour grapes. But at a certain point, I'm doing a disservice if I'm not telling the truth. Mm. Because that's the way we learn. Unfortunately, somebody has to be out there on the lead, sticking their neck out in order to get the team to the top. You know, it's there's just has to be some sacrifice in that. And personally, it is um, difficult for me to talk about this sometimes. You know, one thing I've also noticed is that for um, women who are sort of at the height of their career right now in climbing, I've noticed that there is sometimes a degree of radio silence there about what their experience, what their sort of gendered experience is. Um, and And I wonder if, you know, being able to speak out where you see injustice is a scary thing because it could impact the level of respect you receive in the community. It could impact the level of recognition you receive. It could impact sponsorship. And actually, I'm curious to know if you, in the middle of your career, do you feel like you were able to be as reflective about this? Or if this is, yeah. There's two things that I have to say. I do believe people that are younger, for one, they're, they're living a great lifestyle. They're having fun. They're getting paid. Um, they're not really thinking about maybe having a family or if maybe they've decided not to. That's a big area that, you know, you have to think about and save money for or pick a, a career that you think is going to be viable or, you know, make that balance work. So um, they may not be mature enough to understand all that responsibility because they're in the just enjoyment phase. And, and the other thing is you don't know how much your counterparts are making unless you ask that question, which is kind of inappropriate and actually illegal. For most of our contracts, you're not allowed to discuss that. So you don't really know what you're making compared to other people that may be of equal status. But you know, what's your value to a company? There's a lot of different factors involved. Your ability is only one, your ability to communicate, your looks, actually, I hate to say it, but that's Mm -hmm. definitely a factor. Um, So your ability to provide a service or the marketability that the company is looking for is going to impact your salary in theory. But, you know, there's nobody that's really done careful analysis of this whole situation. So that's a topic they may not even know how to answer. I certainly still don't, but I've seen enough out there to say that there is a difference. Um, But the other question, um, what was the other aspect of the question that you wanted me to answer? Oh yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, Oh, I know if you, if you feel like, you know, you could have been as reflective in the middle of your career versus now. So I asked a question to Katie Brown and she was younger, still, you know, far from being a mother and kind of changing from sport climbing and that whole um, culture that she'd been involved with, got into climbing in Moab and learned how to trad climb. And I said something to her, I don't remember exactly how I brought it up, about this discrepancy or just some of the discrimination she feels um, as a woman in, and a woman climber. And she, she didn't really understand it. And she told me recently, she now has a, a sweet husband and a seven-year-old daughter and she said, you know, now that I, I look back on my life and I see how certain situations went, I had the tendency to blame myself for this. And instead of really seeing that maybe there was some of this sort of discrimination going on. Um, well, would you say that, have you observed in your own life or in the lives of like your climbing, female climbing peers, that um, sort of the level of demonstrated skill or competency or the accomplishment it in some ways needs to be that much greater than their male counterparts in order to receive the same level of recognition? Well, that's that's another difficult question to answer. Let me just think about the fact that um, men and well, the women of today are so much stronger than they were not so long ago. And, you know, the best men were, you know, 
let's say 10 years ago, the best men, now the women are at that level. So it's, you can say that it's a really psychological state, whether, you know, what we're capable of. It's a matter of time period. Back then, women couldn't do it. But why, what's the difference between the women of today versus 10 years ago, right? Mm. So there's that aspect of it. Um, as far as a business question, whether she has to work harder, that could go either way. In some aspects, if you look at um, the classic stereotype, women are sexy and attractive, and this and that's how we're being portrayed in advertising. And you know, the woman with the the bikini top on, or the you know, the one that's going to get the guy's attention, is actually going to be more valuable, probably paid more than a woman who you know, like uh, this woman I was just reading about, Elizabeth Ravel who uh, did eight, three 8,000-meter peaks in a row in the Himalayas, Gashabram 1 and 2, and I forget the third one, um, all solo. And like, you know, I didn't hear about her in the big news, and she's obviously a, a great elite alpinist, male or female. Um, so it just depends on how you're um, valuing these people's achievements or just services let's say in in marketing yeah it is i i sort of think there is a bit of a distinction between sort of uh hard technical climbing single pitch climbing and what is happening in the mountains it i think it for a woman in alpinism it is like a trickier it's a trickier business because you yeah you can't sell a look or a body because you're <laughs> sweating and bloody and covered up in clothes. And it's, it's a bit of a harder, a harder game. I, um, I also interviewed as part of this series, a Ukrainian woman named Marina Kopteva, and she is more purely an alpine climber. And I asked her what she sort of, if she thinks that men and women play on the same field when it comes to alpine climbing. And she said, she thinks effectively she said she thinks albinism is like the great equalizer in that it's actually more about strategy and the ability to navigate hazards than it is just brute strength and and the ability to put your head down and get the job done cuz you know there's a lot of there's a lot more hazard out there i wonder do you, sure. do you think climbing overall is a great equalizer or do you think the the gender difference is still quite vast in climbing. Well, I do think there's a difference in our physiology. You can't deny that having testosterone would be nice, but testosterone, if you want to look at it from a psychological standpoint, might not, might not always be a benefit if it's, you know, about ego stuff or aggressive kind of uh, tendencies that you might associate with testosterone. Cause I do think that women, have a softer, more compassionate approach in the world. And that's why I think that there needs to be more balance. Um, but as far as a physiological challenge of climbing, um, I do think that the, the mental state is the most important. And I think that a woman can be as strong, you know, I won't say stronger, let's say it's, that's just up to an individual to be as, as good as they possibly can. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of genetic factors involved in our, what we're given, you know, how we're born, but I think we have choice and we can make good choices. And, you know, if you have reasonable intelligence, I think that you can figure things out. That just seems to be the way of nature and the way of our human psychology. If you really want something and you focus on it, you can get really good at it. And, um, so the physiological differences of a man being bigger and maybe being able to carry more in the mountains. Well, if you're smaller, you have smaller shoes and they weigh less and you still have to drink water and food. So there's, there's a certain physiological tax on that. But, um, I think women do better under duress physiological and, um, like food and, and water. It seems like women can be pretty tar- pretty darn tough. How would you describe the the difference between climbing with a male partner versus a female partner is there is there a difference for you or it's all the same i guess it depends on the particular relationship because you could say that men you know they tend to talk about certain things amongst themselves and maybe they have a different dialogue when they're with a person of the opposite sex just naturally so there's a different rapport 
with different people based on either stereotype or your particular relationship. Um, I have a lot of good male friends and I have a lot of good female friends and it is different um, being with a woman versus a man. And it doesn't matter, you know, I mean, I guess it does matter uh, a male female friendship um, when the other person or both people are married, that kind of maybe is a little bit of a um, safety net in Mm -hmm. in some psychological way, because there's no agenda to, push things into a more intimate level where, you know, which is the natural dynamic some would say uh, between men and women. I don't necessarily believe that, but men have said that to me. It's they don't have very many female friends that they don't have other interests in, you know, which I find strange because if it's a friend, it's a friend, but there's this underlying biology that possibly, you know, we should give credit to and just say that, um, as long as you're clear in that relationship, there's no hidden agenda. Um, you can have a great relationship with a, a male climbing partner, like my friend Brooke Sandal, for example, who I climbed the nose with. Um, we were never more than friends, and we remained friends, and I really love Brooke and hope the best for him, and, and I think he feels the same towards me. Yeah. So that's a great you know, male, female relationship, friendship, partnership, and climbing. Yeah. Um, and these days, I think I climb more with women than men, although my boyfriend now is getting into climbing. Well, he, he was just getting into climbing when we met. So we climb together, but it's a different kind of climbing together. It's not like he and I are going to go run up the nose together. That will never happen. Which <laughs> is kind of nice. If there's no pressure in that climbing relationship. There's no agenda for him to be any kind of well-known climber, and he has uh, a secure enough life in, of his own that he's not threatened by the attention that I get, which could be a problem for some mm-hmm. men. Well, has that ever been a weird experience for you? Like, do you ever feel uncomfortable occupying this, I mean, for lack of a better description, total boss lady, where you're like one of the best women climbers or climbers of all time but also you know you're kind of proving the it goes boys thing in your regular life too do you ever feel uncomfortable occupying that space where you are so uh successful (laughs) well sometimes it feels um I feel a little bit misunderstood maybe or uh people make the wrong assumptions about me um just based on the fact that I'm successful. They, they put me in a box in their mind. They think they know who I am and my tendencies, but they really don't. Yeah. They have no idea who I actually am most of the time. They might have a sense of maybe listening to me, how I might feel about certain things, but that doesn't go across the board in my, my life, my personal life, yeah. and the dynamic that I might have with a boyfriend or my son. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a lot of responsibility, I would say. Yeah. Um, People don't realize um, how much I, I'm asked to give of my time. And um, and I think it's nice that I can do that. You know, really simple things people do appreciate, and that makes me feel good. But um, sometimes it it's consumes me, and it's I have to protect myself because in order to be me, I need to have time to be me. I can't just give all of my, my essence away. Mm-hmm. It's, it drains me. Mm-hmm which I should definitely add, thank you very much for giving your audience oh. today. <laughs> um, I, I realized there was one question I wanted to ask you that was sort of along the lines of what we were speaking about earlier in the dynamic between the male-female climbing partnership. And I, I'm imagining this was never an issue for you, but with myself and my, um, my female friends, what often gets chatted about is this weird dynamic where when you're climbing with a male partner, you almost like naturally sort of step aside, pass the lead off, you know, take a backseat to decision-making. Um, and, and this is sort of like a, a common conversation. Do you, have yes. you ever experienced that? Do you see that? Oh, I think that this is another one of those subconscious truths that people don't know that they're doing this. But I think that, a lot of men think that their decision-making should rule. And yours as a female 
should be considered, but he gets to be the one to make the decision. I do think that they feel mm. they're the ones in charge and they feel that that's natural. And, and that's annoying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever let that happen in your own life? I would imagine no, but. <laughs> uh, how could it not? It's happening, it's happening to all of us. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is why I'm talking about it, because people don't realize they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like we live this. There's a story about us in our in our sport, and it's amazing how easily we slide in to embodying that story without even consciously thinking about it. It just kind of happens naturally, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Galen Rao wrote the book, um, The Vertical World of Yosemite, and in his introduction to the 90s, I say this in my my shows, when I go out on the road, I have this whole little clip about this. And he says, women are conspicuously absent from the pages of this book. Hmm. I make no apologies here because there simply were no women making major first ascents during the formative years of Yosemite. And who is Beverly Johnson? Did she not do some first ascents that were pretty significant, like the hmm. grape race or grape, grape race? Yeah, she she was one person that I fortunately had to look up to. It was really important for me to know somebody who took these uh, really amazing adventures out into the world and rock and in all sorts of mediums. She was working with her husband, doing some film projects, and she just made no big deal about what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And that's but, why that's why she was sort of left out of the history books because she wasn't pushing her agenda or sort of like no. I think she was overlooked, but that was a very big oversight. And, you know, there was one picture with a woman who was a girlfriend of Mark Chapman or something on a swing. She wasn't climbing, but it was just kind of like a camp scene. And that's pretty much all the women you'd see, like sticking their feet out of tents or whatever with a guy on top of them. That's how the women were included. Wow. And so then do you overall think that the history of women in climbing has been captured adequately? Or do you think there are huge gaps in the information? Well, how would I know if I haven't seen the history? How do I know what else has been going on? There there are certain go-to people like Lucy Walker, you know, from the 1800s who climbed in Chamonix. There was also several women, actually, Chantal Modi, more modern, and this Elizabeth Ravel. Um, But, yeah, there there are certain people that you can look towards, and there's a lot of people that may not have been talked about that did some amazing things that were of the character that did not want to be in the limelight. My my good friend Mari Gingery is one of those people who you know was a pioneer right alongside with me. Even she's older than me, so she might have. I don't know if she started before me. She might have, but in any case, she's a low key person. She doesn't want notoriety out of climbing. But she's a good historian, mm-hmm. and she she's important to our culture. It's just in a different style. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, like, generally speaking, the people that we're going to to find information about the history of climbing or where we're going to get that, you know, what's current and state of the art and what's been happening, it's typically to the to the male voices. And you know, I can think of two female alpinists that are out there currently right now, and they're also very quiet about what they do and don't want to be receive recognition. And uh, it's both like, it's super cool, like so, so honorable and so worthy. But at the same time, you're like, shoot, like that's important information for the next generation of women. Sure. Do you feel, do you feel like certain parts of your climbing career have been missed or overlooked? Or do you feel like you received adequate recognition? I mean, certainly they're, obviously the nose, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, the nose was done during the time before internet. So I think I missed the boat a little bit by being so ahead, you know, in terms of the culture of that kind of media. Um, Yes, I get, I get credit in the history books, but that's different than, you know, the kind of career that you could have doing that same thing today. Totally. Imagine, imagine. Yeah. It's apples and oranges, but um, yeah, I think that's one of the financial uh, aspects that 
you know, there's a lot of factors to it, but I think being a woman is part of it. Then, you know, the timing is part of it, the culture of sponsorship and what that means, uh, marketing, what does that mean these days? I think people get paid a lot through social media platforms and how many followers you have, which, you know, that's just a number statistics, I guess. Um, so as far as my personal experience, I, I don't really mind about whatever history. I, I barely remember some of the roots I did in Joshua Tree back <laughs> in the day. You know, it's just like it was part of it's part of who I am today. They were important experiences, but conjuring them up and ex- displaying them somehow doesn't really it's not a necessity to me. I think that um it's it's relevant in some of the experiences that I've had and how I I think about the world. So maybe that's how my experiences are being used today. It's not a direct thing. And mm-hmm. I don't really feel like I need credit for, you know, being the first five first. I mean, it is in the, in the statistics. If you read about me, like I did the first five fourteen three three years before another woman, um, that was kind of one statistic that's important to me, you yeah. know, cause it was well before other women. And it was when, you know, guys were saying, oh, women can't do 514. So, you know, that's that's kind of um, a benchmark. Um, also, the first woman to on-site, a 513B, 8A, which is a more important number, I think, in the French grading system because 8A was like a big deal. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking this many, many years before when I first moved to France, so that would have been like early 90s. I remember going to this really steep climbing area and thinking, you know, 513, that's going to be somebody's warm-up. I know it feels hard to <laughs> right now, but that's going to be somebody's warm-up. Those holds are big. They're not small. They just, it just feels like a big effort. And and so it's all a matter of your perception. And I think that's what's interesting about, um, you know, take picking up the glove and saying, yep, I can do that. And so those things to me um, are benchmarks that prove that people can do a lot more than they think. Yeah. And I guess, correspondingly, like, I think you have a really cool and nuanced perspective when it comes to the value of first female ascents, that it's not like an across the board thing. It's about really specific instances where, where it really matters. Eight, the first eight day onsite that matters. Like, do you, do you feel like maybe the history of climbing has been inadequately captured for women? And that might be why maybe more maybe this is more relevant to alpinism but why there is a bit of a a leg or a difference between what's accomplished by men teams of men versus what's accomplished by teams of women like could it really just revolve around this this information sharing piece and that when we when us as women don't know that somebody's gone before us it's harder for us to step out the door and do something that it feels challenging sure. But that's also our responsibility to write about it and to contribute in that way. And, you know, there are young women that are sponsored and that's what they're doing. They're creating the stories, the the photos and videos and writing things. And uh, they're looking for, you know, something that is new to share, something that has sort of an exciting intrigue behind it. And it's not going to necessarily be the first ascent of a Himalayan peak. Um, there are women that are capable of doing that, but there aren't as many as men. And that's a whole nother discussion of why. Mm-hmm. I think there's a huge number of women that are into sport climbing and bouldering. Um, again, back on that topic of, you know, testosterone and power, I think men will have an advantage in doing the ultimate most difficult boulder problem. But um, what women are doing, you know, like I've seen in my town, I, I watch Alex Puccio and Margot Hayes and they come to the gym and they're really strong. Mm. I can't imagine how strong people are, you know, in the ultimate sense these days, but I think that's all interesting. I love to watch the videos of them climbing. I love to read what they're saying. Um, and, and I think this is a great opportunity for women to step into that role. And what is it like for you to be that person for a whole generation of female climbers too, who are, who, you know, we look to inspiration to know that somebody's gone before us and that it's possible. How does it feel for you to be that person? Well, like I said, it's a big responsibility. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I take it seriously. Uh, 
And I encourage others to do it because I have been in a small group of women for many years, it's, but now that pool of talent and, and enthusiasm has grown. So I think that if you don't see more stories and, and video about women, then you, you'd have to say that's because the editors and people that are putting these uh, media platforms together are not asking for it or not um, considering it as relevant. But mm. I, I, I think that it's just a matter of creating the quality and, you know, we have to step into that role. You can't use this as an excuse, but yeah, I mean, I've been saying all this well, for a lot of this time that there are um, sort of stereotypes that we have to work through, but we also have to believe in ourselves right. and we have to go out there and get it. And that's hard. And it's what men have been doing and they've been taught to do all of their lives. They compete hard in sports and they're overtly competitive and, and we, we can do the same. We can even be supportive of each other and competitive. We all want to win. And and we all want, you know, I, I actually want everybody to do their best. And, you know, that's maybe not the best attitude for the ultimate winner because the winner wants to be the only one. But uh, <laughs> uh, that's something that we haven't been taught. As, as little girls, we're taught not to confront and uh, – and some of us have been telling ourselves that we don't have to try as hard because we are not as strong or it's not expected. And so therefore, when it gets difficult, you don't give that extra push that you could have mustered. Right. Yeah. That's such a good perspective is that um, it, it's a little bit cultural that we sort of stand down all the time. And, and then that means that you're kind of like relieving yourself of any responsibility and the lack of coverage about women's climbing or the, you know, the, the pay gap or whatever. But we also have a responsibility to get into that uncomfortable space where we are asking for more or where we are tooting our own horn a little bit, so to speak. And yeah, it means like the onus is on us as well, isn't it? To push. Well, we don't have to do it in the male style. So tooting our, the, our own horn, we don't have to do that. What we have to do is come up with quality work that's all if we film our or whatever have good images of ourselves um either a man or a woman could be behind the camera <laughs> writing we can write uh, we can do a lot of things that are in our power you just have to sort of step outside what is typically expected of of us to do or to res- how we would respond well like the the classic male uh perspective is like the Hollywood story, right? There's there's the love intrigue and there's a challenge, there's conflict. And at the end, you know, throughout all these difficulties, the person, you know, gets what they wanted and, and the woman too, you know. And it's not always that way. You can tell a story in a lot of different ways. And I think that that's what I was saying before about the balance of a female perspective. It's not going to be the same old theme. It doesn't have to be the same old theme. Yeah, to be successful. I guess we have to define what is success or what is um, a contribution. So in climbing, what do you think is the way forward for a woman's contribution? What does that look like? I mean, maybe you are blazing that trail too. Like what, what does it look like for a woman being involved? Well, actually, um, as you say that, I think you're right because uh, right now I'm working on a documentary. It's not really in my hands at this point, but the person I'm working with happens to be a man, but he has a lot of feminine qualities. He's like one of these beautiful people that has both sides to him. And what that means to our story is that our collective opinion is creating something completely different than the actual, you know, sender films type of a, uh, a climbing movie. It is definitely more of a male audience. Their you know, jokes are more like, you know, guy humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it definitely seems more oriented towards a male audience. We are creating something that I hope both men and women will enjoy. And, wow. you know, kids and whoever, whatever age, I think it should be a universal, we like this story because it's interesting and it it's truthful and it shows something that people may not already know. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to see it because <laughs> it is true. If I think back to the climbing media, that's always 
been a part of my world. It's it's like the guy the guy story, the bro the brotherhood, the bro story, and oh man, it would be pretty exciting to see things, to see the story of climbing in a slightly from a slightly different perspective. Um, it sounds like overall, and you have a lot of capacity. And do you think that having such a high amount of capacity is something you've learned from climbing? Or do you think it's inherent in you as a woman? Or do you think it's a learned skill? Like, where do you find this, like, incredible ability to take on so much? If you looked at my mother, who had seven kids, she had um, only three years between this number six and number seven. I'm number five. Wow. And my oldest sister is less than five years older than me. So imagine what she did. She would make her grandchildren tired. So I think that my mother has an amazing capacity for energy and curiosity. And so I feel very happy that I inherited that. And that was probably nature and nurture, being around her, being a you know, product of her genetics. And then I think that you know once you're in the world and you make those decisions, um, it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle of, yes, I can do this. You, you are rewarded. You try, you keep trying, you keep expanding. And, and those same patterns of thinking and taking on challenge help you go on to the next level. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you stay engaged in life and challenged, you will have energy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's part of what I would say on the topic of aging um, there's a lot of ageism too out there. People don't think that you're capable because you're like, I'm almost 60 years old. In less than a year, I'll be 60, which is strange for me to say. It sounds like <laughs> a number that doesn't relate to me, but it does. Um, it's not like I'm denying my age or anything, but I don't feel like I have excuses because I'm old. Of course, I'm not as strong as I was 25 years ago, but again, the nuances of of what I could do then and what I can do now is not what's important to me. That's more of an egoic thing. And I know a lot of men who can't perform like they used to get discouraged and some have actually quit mm. climbing, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. But that's not my measure of, you know, benefit or or why I climb. So that's I think you can stay healthy and and climb for a long time. I actually I had here on my list one of the things to ask you is like what has been your experience of sort of like ageism, but in the context of climbing specifically, do you, do you think that um, there is a difference between a man that's sort of at the end of his career versus a woman that's at the end of her climbing career? Absolutely. Yeah. And what would those, what do you think? Like what, what would those differences be? Pure fact. I have zero sponsors and I, I look around, I can name some men that are of my age that are still being sponsored. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yeah. But you know, I, I won't say that we're, we're talking apples and or, or apples and apples. It's just a fact that you can look at independently of, okay, so what, what are these men doing versus what am I doing? And, um, you know, I'm not a social media person. Um, per se, although I have to say recently I've been contributing in that way by um, posting exercises, really simple physical therapy with my boyfriend who is a physical therapist and he worked with the Pistons NBA basketball team for, I don't know, almost 30 years. So he knows a lot about fitness and performance and taking care of the body. So I have been posting for that purpose. And um, eventually I'm thinking in another couple months, I'll finally have my climbing technique video done. Cool. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) Well, that's a different, it's sort of a different topic, but they're related. The uh, posts that we've been doing are little tidbits Mm -hmm. and the climbing technique video is more a platform of information that describes the different techniques, when and why we use them, uh, planning strategies, and then um, ongoing vlogs on topics that are more psychological because that's not going to be as content driven. You can't talk about how you're dealing with fear watching um, a video unless it's just, you know, constantly watching somebody on the edge of some scary route. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, the, the uh, idea of that is to help people understand the mechanics of climbing and body position and, um, 
and I'm using graphics to point out some of the forces involved so that you can uh, help break down movement to understand it and be better, more efficient. Well, thank you. I'm excited for that. We need, and especially it's cool because it would be in the, it's the voice of a woman. It's the experience of a woman in, in this world of training that is becoming so and so important in climbing and training and movement and, and being efficient. Um, yeah. And for the sake of time, because I know you are so graciously offering your time to this, um, I guess I should probably ask one last question and then let you get going. Um, so maybe uh, the best question to ask you would to just give you the floor and say, um, is there any sort of word of advice or words of wisdom that <clears throat> you want to share? <clears throat> what would you give to the next generation of women that's coming up behind you? Well, I guess along the theme that I've been talking about, I would say follow your passions, which sounds cliche, but I mean your passions and your your style of doing things. Don't just try to fit into the mold that has been created before you. Put something out there that you create that is your vision. And if it's, you know, like a media thing or just in your own climbing, pick the climbs that you want to do for the reasons that you want to do them. Uh, don't get sucked into other people's ideas of what you should do and how you should do them. Follow your own path. That's what I would say. Lynn referred a couple of times to a new climbing video she's developing. The video is called The Technique Workshop, and it should be available later this winter. Watch for updates at lynnhillclimbing.com. There's a link to Sarah's article in the 2020 AHA at the Cutting Edge website. Or you can search state-of-the-art Sarah Hart and you'll find it. Thanks to Lynn and Sarah for making this episode happen. We'll be rolling out more of Sarah's interviews with top female alpinists over the next few months. Thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker, the presenting sponsor of The Cutting Edge. Go to hilleberg.com to learn more about their world-famous tents. And to our newest sponsor, PolarTech, celebrating 40 years of making synthetic fleece for alpinists. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs. <laughs>